Well, hello. It is Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. November, what, 24th? I don't even know what day it is. <laughs> November 24th at uh, 1700, 5 o'clock p.m. for those uh, civilians out there. Um, <clears throat> I'm here to talk music, movies, and video games. What inspired me was being a kid and uh, just, you know, I guess just having the right influence and being at the right place at the right time. Um, a little bit about myself, then I'll get into what I'm going to talk about. So music, movies, and video games here. Music. Uh, my first piece of music was uh, MC Hammer, actually, of all things, on cassette. I remember being, you know, six, seven years old, walking through the mall, thought I was a badass, and then going to Hot Topic and being like, whoa, I'm clearly blown away by everything else that I'm not aware of yet. But not just Hot Topic, but anyway, uh, obviously there's better stories than that, in my opinion, of course. Opinions are like assholes. Everybody has one, right? Anyway. <clears throat> okay. So... And then the follow-up piece of music I got was probably Marcy Playground. And then follow-up from that was probably Sex Pistols, Social Distortion on cassette. And then a follow-up from that CD was uh, Bare Naked Ladies as well as the Sublime Self-Titled because my dad heard me playing Dave Mira BMX, PS1, and Sublime was on there as well as Cypress Hill and Deftones. So clearly I have an eclectic taste of music. I listen to everything except opera relatively. I have a lot of classical jazz as well as... It's not classical jazz together, but I mean, obviously there's smooth jazz. There's, you know, I mean, uh, I like funk, uh, you know, George Benson, Grover Washington, um, Johnny Guitar Watson, Mississippi, uh, you know, McDowell. Um, I mean, any, anything blues, whatever, metal, punk. I absolutely love metal and punk, bread and butter. But anyway, what inspired me to start a podcast is because I feel like as if I have the knowledge to convey to those who are interested in learning about good and or bad music, movies, and video games. And in some cases I can talk books as well as anime given the opportunity, but, um, I've been <clears throat> watching VHS as long as I can remember going to Long's drugstore, which turned into a Playco toys down the road, which I also can talk toys. I will gladly do so eventually. But, um, I remember renting VHSs in the plastic tape. I loved watching horror movies then. And I love watching horror movies now. I do love good movies as well, but I definitely love watching just bad movies overall, mostly, but good movies are also a great time to be had as well. Video games, I have a huge collection from NES, TurboGrafx, Sega Saturn, Sega Dreamcast, uh, today, Switch, PS4, Xbox One, PS3, whatever, all of that. I have all of it, and I love playing it, and I love talking about it. So that's why you guys are here. You guys want to hear me talk about music, movies, and video games. So today, I first episode, pilot, no co-pilot, that's what I'm calling it, or you know, flying solo, whatever. Uh, for Marshall's media montage today, I'm going to be talking Warriors of Virtue, as well as the Weird Al Yankovic movie, those two movies. Uh, games, Bucky O'Hare for NES, Panic Restaurant for NES, and uh, a couple Switch games and PS3 games. <clears throat> Not very much. I'll, I'll be very brief about those. TV shows, uh, a little bit of anime, Hunter x Hunter, um, Samurai Pizza Cats, and uh, even I Dream of Genie. I love I Dream of Genie. She's, she's great. Barbara Eden. She's a babe still. Uh, been reading a little bit of From Hell, Alan Moore, the same guy who did Watchmen. It's a graphic novel. It's great. It's fiction. It's obviously based about uh, Jack the Ripper, for those of you who know. For those of you who don't, now you know. Uh, I've been reading a little bit of the Led Zeppelin bio. There's so many different bios about classic rock artists. Um, I thought I lost this book and then I found it. And, uh, you know, now I'm getting back into it and uh, I I enjoy it. Uh, music, uh, other than listening to podcasts, like I said, I listen to everything. But as of late, according to my Amazon uh, albums that I listen to chronologically, I'm on M and I was listening to System of a Down's Mesmerize. Uh, minus the bears, uh, menos el oso, which is Spanish for minus the bear. I have it tattooed on my right wrist uh, on the top side. Uh, I've always liked minus the bear, um, smashing pumpkins, melancholy, infinite sadness. Okay. So those music movies and video games will be discussed now. Okay. So <clears throat> I just watched this morning, 
Uh, Warriors of Virtue, it was released May 2nd, 1997. It has a 4.7 score on IMDb out of 3275, 3,275 people. Not very good at all. I found out that there was a sequel called Return to Tao that came out in 2002, and I'm going to have to look forward to watching that. <laughs> I sound sarcastic, but I mean, it's a little bit of both. I'll, I'll get to how I feel about it in a minute. I'm going to give you the specs. Anyway, made by Ronnie Yu, the same director who did Freddy vs. Jason, uh, Bride of Chucky, and Fearless. Now, Fearless is, you know, two th- I think it was 2007, if I'm not mistaken. Anyway, Jet Li, classic martial arts movie, really cool. And I feel like this movie, Warriors of Virtue, is basically like a, a family kind of oriented, you know, martial arts movie, or they tried to, and it, yeah, I'll get to that in a minute. But uh, it's incredible to think that, you know, Ronnie Yu, the guy who also did Freddy vs. Jason, which was supposed to be, I think, Jason vs. Pinhead, if I'm not mistaken, which I would love to see Leatherface vs. Michael Myers or Leprechaun vs. Chucky. I don't know why nobody gets the rights and does something like that. I know the fans would love to see that, including myself. Um, And then also did Bride of Chucky, which, you know, after the original trilogy, which is my favorite, Bride of Chucky was enjoyable to an extent. You know, it it had its moments that I enjoyed. But uh, it's weird to think that... He did absolute, you know, slasher classic horror to martial arts. I'm like, okay, whatever. I mean, he clearly enjoys it as much as, you know, his fans do. So that's great. Anyway, the sequel, Return to Tal. Okay, the way that I would like to view these two movies, I can relate to how usually video game uh, to film adaptations are made. Uh, Obviously, Mortal Kombat, the one that came out with like 95, 96, if I'm not mistaken. Anyway, it's a guilty pleasure. It's not the best film, but it's enjoyable for what it is. It was a video game movie at the time done, I would like to say, quote unquote, right. And then the sequel, Annihilation, yes, it's bad, but it has its fan base. I enjoy it for what it's worth. I liked it, and I think I have nostalgic glasses for it because I remember <clears throat> excuse me, going to the movie theaters as a kid and seeing it with my dad, and I remember him falling asleep in the movies at, like, I don't know, it was like 15 minutes in, and I thought it was hilarious, and I still watched the movie, and I still enjoyed it, woke him up, and then we went home. You know, I mean... So even though you didn't like it, Dad, thanks for coming with me. Um, that's how I would like to view the first one being like, okay, it's one of those like iconic kind of, you know, like nostalgic, like never ending story meets like last action hero meets Dark Crystal. It's something along those lines to me. And there was slowdown when there was a lot of the martial arts happening. Uh, Mario Yadidia was the uh, little kid who has like a Forrest Gump issue with his leg. And then he ends up in this weird world called Tao apparently through like the sewer pipes and he's bullied by these kids because of his leg and you know they all think he's stupid eh, you're not gonna amount to anything eh, he's I'll show you you know steps on this pipe tries to cross this little sewage area and then gets thrown in by the water and then ends up in this page master world basically that yeah I forgot to mention that it's like page master as well in relation to how Macaulay Culkin slips you know hits his head and then okay I guess Mario Yudidia slips and you know into the water and ends up in Tao it's analogous um so that happens and he ends up there there's like the five um ruse or whatever so apparently they are kangaroos it made sense to me and i was like okay i get it you know the it, it kind of had like that jim henson puppeteering feel to it the animatronics um you know the main villain reminds me of the villain from the ninja turtles live action three movie meets like robert smith the Cure. it's probably because the hair his acting was atrocious i mean he tried i get it i've never seen him in anything else um, then he makes like weird, obscure noises, like randomly that are just like high pitched. I'm like, what the hell was that all about? Mario Didia did win an award for, I think it was best, um, young artist award at the time in 1998, uh, filmed in, I believe China and Canada, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Filmed in China and Canada. Um, and I, I'm assuming that's where he won the award for his acting. Yeah. I, I believe his acting, you know, for that film was probably the best, um, 
you know, and it he's mostly the main protagonist. There is uh, Master Chung, if I'm not mistaken. Like I said, and there's then there's the five ruse. It's like metal, wood, uh, earth, water, and fire, and something like that. Um, he has a book which reminds me of Neverending Story, you know, and it's uh, the legend of shoot, can't remember what it's called. It's like some basic name. It's like the legend of the mystics or whatever, like. <laughs> The mystical legend book, legend of the artifacts or something. I'm like, okay, I couldn't think of a better name, whatever. You open it up and then it's blank, you know, and then the uh, villain realizes after he captured uh, Mario, I don't remember the kids. Oh, Ryan, Ryan, that's his name in the film. Mario Diddy is, uh, you know, name in the movie is Ryan Jeffies or Jeffries or something. It's like something really bizarre. Yeah, like my name's Ryan Jeffrey. I don't know why he sounds like a prospector, but anyway, his name is Ryan Jeffries, some crap like that, some sort of generic 90s white kid name and uh, you know, he's supposed to be the main protector of this book. He finds the book initially from this like Chinese restaurant that he goes and bugs this guy at. And I, it's just a convoluted mess. It, I know even basically what I just told you, uh, you know, you guys are probably like, what the hell is that? I mean, yeah, I would say watch it for nostalgic reason purposes. It's enjoyable, but it's, it's really, it just, it falls apart as you continue to watch it. I mean, I feel like they tried and I suppose that's why it only has a 4.7 rating. It's just, you know, I'm looking forward to watching the sequel, even though I'm sure it's going to be crap, but I'm excited. Uh, the budget itself was $35 million. It only grossed 6.5, so it was a $29 million uh, deficit. So, you know, that happened. And, uh, I mean, just just give it a watch, you know? <laughs> Try it out. Anyway, <clears throat> second film I watched recently. I definitely watched other movies, but these are the two that I can recall that I watched recently that I can remember and talk about. The Weird Al film with Daniel Radcliffe came out November 4th, 2022. It has a 7.1 on IMDb out of 16,905 people. Uh, Diedrich Bader, the guy from the Drew Carey show, as well as Office Space, uh, was the narrator for the film. I had no idea it was him until I realized, I'm like, okay, that's definitely him, you know, telling Daniel Radcliffe to turn on the boobs on Channel 9 or whatever. Uh, he actually didn't say that, but that'd be funny if he did. Anyway, <clears throat> He also did tell him, did he, or he asked him if he had a case in the Mondays, and uh, Weird Al said, no, no, shit, no. No, he didn't say that, but that'd be great. Anyway, Daniel Radcliffe as Weird Al definitely sells it. I'm really not a big Harry Potter fan, but, you know, him being ripped and his English accent didn't necessarily overtake the film. It just, it was just done really well. He sold it. I, I really enjoyed it, and I like the idea that it's clearly fiction as well as eh, maybe a hint of a memoir. It's written by Weird Al himself, directed by Eric Apple. I don't see him or ever heard of him in any other uh <clears throat> directorial or producing um perspective um rain wilson is a uh, was a captain demento i believe which is essentially his manager you know aka dwight schrute he has the same glasses and the same demeanor and everything else he's basically typecasted ever since the office i don't know if that's just how he is and he doesn't know how to act or maybe i'm just being a harsh asshole i really i'm not sure but he's the same person and everything anyway thomas lennon from reno 911 is in it. He's the uh, individual who's essentially creates the plot for the film. He sells uh, Weird Al the accordion, and you know takes off from there. Highly recommended. It was great. It was enjoyable. It was funny. There was action. Madonna's like a drug cartel leader with Pablo Escobar in parts of the film that doesn't. It doesn't make any sense, but it, it's funny in that regard. I, I would highly recommend it. I am a tough critic when it comes to newer films, and I really enjoyed it. So <clears throat> highly, highly recommended. Uh, it was filmed in LA and it, it was only made on an $8 million budget, which in today's terminology, that's essentially nothing. Uh, okay. <clears throat> Music moving on. Smashing Pumpkins released, uh, Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness, October 24th, 1995. And it came out the 25th, uh, in the UK a day later. It's a 28 track, two disc set. 
But for some reason on my Amazon music, it's like 92 songs and it's like five discs. I think it's like unreleased recordings as well as like acoustic tracks and demo tracks or whatever. I mean, I, I enjoy it. Granted, I only listen to probably the first half of the album still. I just feel like it suits what I prefer to listen to more so than the uh, latter half. Um, <clears throat> it was recorded in March through August of that year and then obviously released in October. So, you know, they were able to complete it in just a few months. And uh, that's that's incredible. You know, bravo, Billy. Corgan, of course. Uh, the hits on that album are uh, Bullet with Butterfly Wings, 1979, Tonight Tonight, uh, Zero, and Jelly Billy. I remember being a kid and always hearing 1979 on the radio. And I remember the uh, song Zero being on The Simpsons as a kid. And I just remember it was like such a big deal. I like I, I love The Simpsons. Anyway, uh, Jelly Belly is also on it. Uh, Tales of Scorched Earth as well as Lily in regards to uh, discussing songs that I think are relatively well known by, uh, you know, that the discography of that band. Um, great album. I listened to a lot of podcasts. Like I said, I listened to a lot of music. But uh, as of late, I was listening to Smashing Pumpkins and uh, System of a Down, Mesmerize. <clears throat> released May 17th, 2005, recorded June through November of 2004. So they waited, you know, about a year before releasing it. And, uh, yeah, yeah, just, I mean, yeah. Well, I mean, the end of the, rec- okay, six months, you know, but it started recording basically a year prior, you know, so they took their time. But what's funny is, you know, it's an only a 36-minute album. It's their shortest album in their discography, which is incredible and you know, they took such a long time, but they were also uh, recording Hypnotize at the same time, the follow-up album that was recorded. Uh, the, the main tracks on that, in my perspective, are BYOB as well as Old School slash, you know, Lost in Hollywood, Old School Hollywood, whatever. It's essentially the same title track. Um, there are other songs on there are well-known to fans of the band as well, but I feel like these are the two slash three that I feel like get brought up the most that are on that album, in my perspective. The intro soldier side, I don't really understand. I'll be brief. I don't really understand intros in albums or outros if it's literally just instrumentals. I was like, if I want to, personally, I was like, if I want to listen to instrumentals, I'll listen to either jazz or classical or, you know, international music, whether it be like sitars or uh, like French music or Gregorian monks or something. I don't know, just straight instrumental. I know what I'm getting into. Unless it's literally like, like I feel like, in my perspective, I feel like Tool does instrumentals right because it's like 15 20 seconds rather than it being like a minute two minute interlude or prologue or epilogue from like other bands that i feel like i hear and i'm like i I don't want to hear instrumentals if i wanted to hear that i'll just listen to you know i don't know west montgomery or uh, george benson or some sort of old jazz funk whatever anyway okay other band minus the bear menos aloso the album i have that tattooed on my right wrist on the top that was like my third or fourth tattoo i've had it for a long time uh, it is their second album released shortly after. Uh, I, I think the album was called like I. They make beer commercials like this. Anyway, great title for an album. I thought it was hilarious. Anyway, second album released by the band August twenty third two thousand five. Damn, seventeen going on yeah seventeen and a half years ago. Okay. Uh, it's nearing forty five minutes. The album it I think clocks in at forty four minutes forty forty seven seconds. The whole album is like very story driven. It's almost like one big song that has different time changes. I like the idea that six band members creating, you know, quote unquote math rock can all come together and just create such a distinctive sound and just sing about just whatever. I don't know. Like the guy's voice is just great. I didn't really do too much research on the band members themselves. I just noticed that there were six members. There's 12 songs on this album. The last bonus track is, uh, what is, ah, what's it called? Hang on. Uh, it's like 
they make surf music like this or something. I mean, the album has the fix, the drilling, hooray, Memphis and 53rd. Um, you know, I mean, it, it has so many good songs on it. It's just, it's a, you can't, like, all of them are bangers. It's so good. Like, I, I really enjoy, like, that kind of alternative, just out there kind of rock like that. Like, you know, Block Party, Bobot Adrenaline, Moving Units, that type of stuff. Like, math rock is cool. I mean, it's a weird genre to me. I mean, it's not like they're actually, you know, doing quadratic formulas while performing or, you know, <laughs> discovering how to utilize kinetic energy to, you know, dissect quarks or whatever. But, yeah, whatever, math rock, you keep rocking. Anyway, went over movies and music. Now, <clears throat> video games. Briefly, I can definitely talk books and anime and so forth another day. These are just the categories that I decided to grab for my first podcast. Okay, Bucky O'Hare, released January 1992 by Konami. Uh, it's based on the comic book. And I remember actually this year watching the 13-episode show on YouTube. And it's a guilty pleasure of mine. It reminds me a lot of like the Zelda cartoon or the Mario Brothers cartoon, Sonic, whatever. You know, they're all pretty bad. Like, you know, Samurai Pizza Cat's bad, but for what it's worth, I mean, if you enjoy it, you enjoy it. Granted, I know I tried recently uh, Street Sharks, I thought it was bad. I tried Transformers, uh, Beast Wars, thought it was bad. Angry Beavers, thought it was bad. I mean, you know, maybe I'm a tough critic, but maybe I need to rewatch it. Anyway, it's an action platformer with shmup levels. Shmup is short for shoot 'em up for those of you who don't game, that's okay. Um, it's incredibly difficult. I use save states because I don't want to pay $150 for a physical cartridge on the NES, according to price charting. $150 loose. Uh, yeah, I have it on one of my uh, mini consoles. I have it on the Nintendo mini console. I hacked it. I admit I have uh, what, Game Boy, Game Boy Color, Neo Geo, Neo Geo Pocket on there, Famicom, Famicom Disk System. Um, I think Sharp X68000 is on there as well, the Japanese uh, computer from the 80s. I mean, I have a lot of different emulated... Uh, devices that have different types of consoles arraying, you know, a vary of sorts. Anyway, <clears throat> it takes place in space. You're killing toads. Uh, Willie, I guess, would be the main uh, human protagonist. Bucky O'Hare is a rabbit. There's Blinky the robot, Cat Jenny, and uh, Deadeye the duck. You can uh, change between characters on the fly. It's, like I said, an action platformer, shoot em up, kind of run and gun. Uh, very, very little p- uh, puzzle oriented but uh, there's a lot of platforming and it's a very very difficult game it's very fast paced as well it's a solid game and took me about an hour and a half to beat with safe states yeah i cheated whatever but i enjoyed it highly recommended uh the next game panic restaurant released in north america october 1992 by taito the same guys who did a bubble bobble it is a platformer, and it took me about 30 minutes to beat. It's very colorful, great sprites. The chef's name is Cookie. The main villain is uh, Odove, I think is how they spell it or pronounce it, but it's obviously hors d'oeuvre. They probably just didn't put it in English because they were like, English people aren't going to be able to read it. hors d'oeuvre. It's because hors d'oeuvre is, you know, spelled, well, in French. Anyway, you utilize kitchen utensils. There's, like, plates. Uh, you can jump on forks, and uh, you have a frying pan as your main weapon. Um, there's big sprites, as I said before. He doesn't move very fast, but it's really easy, intuitive mechanics, uh, easy to play, relatively. The platforming, I'd say, is the most difficult. The bosses aren't necessarily that crazy, but, you know, you fight, like, a microwave, then you fight hors d'oeuvre at the end in, like, a frying pan. It's all food and kitchen-related, but highly recommended playing it any which way you can, unless you want to pay, according to PriceCharting.com, $900 for a physical copy on the NES. Uh, either emulate it or just buy a bootleg, you know, China copy, whatever. I don't blame you because I don't want to pay $900 for a video game. Well worth a playthrough, though. Really enjoyable platforming. Uh, newer games. I was playing Bloodstained uh, 1, the digital copy I have on my Switch. Uh, it's 
made by Limited Run, very, very similar to Castlevania, you know, action platformer. You can switch the characters on the fly. They all have their special abilities. They all can either double jump or jump off walls or uh, what do you want to call it? Um, sprint or, you know, dash, dive, whatever. They all have their own little quirks. Uh, more health, less health, hit points, and so forth. Um, highly recommended. I even got the second one recently, the actual physical copy, because I love the first one so much. I was like, I have to own the second one. It just, it was so much fun. Second one seemed like it was a little easier for me to, for a playthrough. However, the last boss is a little more difficult. Maybe I need to give it more time. I stopped playing it because I got stuck. I am on the last boss and I play it on casual because I can't do the whole veteran thing because I don't like knockback and I like having checkpoints. I was like, I value my time. I'm an adult. I have priorities and responsibilities to take care of, you know, house, mortgage, animals and so forth. And I got to go to work, right? I don't have time to accept the knockback and, oh, I guess I'll just start over. I'm not 12 anymore, damn it. Anyway, well, in my mind I am, right? Anyway, uh, Bloodstained 1 beat it. <clears throat> Last boss was easy. Second one, boss is definitely a little more difficult. I got to give more time. I've been playing Live Alive as well, the Square Enix RPG that I have on the Switch. It's originally a Super Famicom game. You play as eight different characters. Each chapter is anywhere between, depending on how long you take to level up your character, you can max at level 10. I'd say an hour to three hours depending on how fast the chapter is or how fast you want to get through it. Um, I beat the Sundown Kid, the Western one. I beat Pogo, the Prehistoric Age. And then I beat Imperial China, the Earth and Heart Shifu. I am now on the Edno, Edono, Japan era uh, portion of it. So I'm about halfway through the game, about six to eight hours in. Um, and I play as Ob Obamaru Mamaru, or however you pronounce his name. I'm not sure. Yeah, he's an Oboe. Sure, why not? He's a woodwind. Yeah, anyway. Solid game so far. I'm definitely enjoying it. Uh, it took me a minute to get used to the game mechanics, but it's a lot of fun. It's, you know, an action-based, uh, well, grid kind of turn-based uh, RPG. Really cool uh, storytelling, obviously, from different uh, perspectives. I, I would recommend it whenever, however anybody can play it. Play it. Uh, I also have been playing a little bit of Legend Dragoon on a PS3. It's a PS1 title. I got it on the PS3 store before uh, the PS3 store, you know, went down the crapper and it's no longer in existence. I think I paid maybe $6 for it. I'm only about maybe a half hour into it. It has really cool game mechanics. I could care less nowadays, even if um, games uh, like graphics look like crap. If the gameplay is there, I'm okay with story. The, the mechanics have to be there. Like it has to be easy to control and a way to save, and, you know, it just has to be fun to play. I could care less, really, for the most part, how a story is or how it looks. If it plays well, I'm all for it. But it's a very fun RPG. It's four discs. It's only, like, 1163 megabyte space, which is next to nothing for a four-disc game on a PS1, in my opinion. But uh, about a half hour into it, and uh, it has real-time action, kind of like how a Super Mario... RPG Legend of the Seven Stars on Super uh, NES was, you know, if you uh, time a button correctly, you can essentially do more damage. And uh, it's enjoyable in that regard. I I've liked it so far. Uh, I've been reading, uh, like I said, uh, the book from Hell, which was Alan Moore, I think is his name, the guy uh, who did uh, The Watchmen. It's about Jack the Ripper. I'm maybe, maybe like, I don't know, 20% into it. I enjoy it so far. I've been leading, reading a Led Zeppelin biography. I mean, there's a million Led Zeppelin biographies out there. But this is taking place as well as kind of like how like an interview, I guess, would from each of the band members. And it's enjoyable. Uh, I finished. Uh, it was a breakdown of every Beatles song. I forgot what the title of the book is, but they from, all, you know, the band members themselves, they go over how each song was formulated and why and what, you know, sense it makes to them and so forth. And it was an interesting read. I also still dabble with reading my uh 
shark and dinosaur encyclopedia whenever I have time, you know, whenever I just feel like uh, brushing up and not ruining my brain cells with talking to you guys about shit that doesn't necessarily matter, but it matters to me. Um, yeah, it's always a good read, uh, reading dinosaurs and sharks. I think I finished the shark encyclopedia a little while ago. Um, I'll probably have to go back and read, reread some things. The dinosaur encyclopedia is great because it's not just dinosaurs. It goes over, you know, amphibians, uh, reptiles, uh, mammals and, you know, fish and bacteria, protozoa and so forth. And the Pleistocene and the Miocene and all those eras. It's, it's a really, really good read. I'm glad I paid whatever I paid for it. It was probably a lot of money at the time. Uh, anime recently that I finished was Jujutsu Kaisen. It's great for those of you who know it. Um, another was like maybe a 12 or 13 episode, kind of like a, like a Silent Hilly kind of vibe meets like a slasher. It was really interesting. I liked that one. Demon Slayer, everybody knows that one now. I, I loved it. I thought it was great. Even the movie was great. And Hunter Hunter, I call it Hunter Hunter because when I went to Japan, that's how they pronounce it over there. They don't pronounce the X. Um, they say Hunter Hunter, and if that's how it's supposed to be said, according to them, then that's how I'm going to say it. You know, and instead of how ignorant Americans say Hunter X Hunter or... You know, everybody says gyro, but it's actually euro, but whatever. To each their own, right? I'm going to say it how they say it. Uh, I haven't finished Hunter Hunter yet, but uh, I definitely aim to when I have time. And I've been I'm maybe about halfway through Samurai Pizza Cats, which same thing. It's a guilty pleasure. It's a terrible show, I admit, but I enjoy it. I, I like watching bad movies and bad TV shows. Um, it's like knockoff Ninja Turtles meets like Street Sharks. And there's like a really weird like narrating voice who talks like they, it's oh, it's almost like borderline. I can't even listen to it. But the video game itself on the Famicom was great. I have it emulated on my uh, NES Mini, you know, action platformer, hack and slash. It's totally worth it. If, you know, any way you guys can find it. I think it's Kayato Nintendi, I think is how you pronounce it. You can probably just type in, uh, you know, emulate Samurai Pizza Cats. I'm sure you can find it. But uh Highly recommended, you know, everything that I suggested, uh, the movies, video games, and books that I'm discussing with you guys. Um, why am I doing this? Because I feel that I definitely enjoy talking about these things that I'm, you know, aspire to hopefully do in relation to, you know, writing a book or possibly making a movie or possibly, you know, making some sort of video game or whatever. I mean, I think we're all in that age where, the digital age can be beneficial as well as uh, disadvantage to those, you know, if used improperly. But, uh, you know, I'm here because I want to express that, you know, the knowledge that I have to convey to you guys as well as, you know, get ideas from you guys that we can share together. I aim to have guests who we talk, you know, music, movies, books, and so forth. And uh, I chose to do, you know, all three because I feel like I don't really hear too many that go over all of these things. I, I, yeah, it might be a niche audience, but I, I do listen to a lot of podcasts where it's strictly just video games or strictly just horror movies or just punk music or whatever, but I like all of everything else that I just mentioned too. So I figured I'd start this. That's why I chose to do it. And, uh, you know, what inspired me was as a kid, just, you know, having readily available just early on music, you know, my parents, it was country music and then they showed me classic rock. And then obviously I fell in love with, you know, listening to punk rock and metal. I mean, those are my bread and butter, but I mean, I listen to everything else too. I just, uh, you know, once like LimeWire and Napster and burning CDs and then FYE and warehouse music, once that all just like took off, the rest was history. And then especially, you know, going to shows at an early age, you know, with homies being in, uh, you know, where I'm located, it was just, it was well worth the fun and the gathering and so forth. Uh, as far as video games, I remember going in my garage 
And for some reason, my dad was standing up playing, I think it was either Punch-Out or Mario or even like Chippendale Rescue Rangers. I remember for some reason we had the NES in the garage and I remember he gave it to me. And then, you know, over the course of time, I, you know, I got a Game Gear, I got an N64, I got um, a PS1, a Genesis, and I just, I don't even remember asking for these things for like Christmas or my birthday. They just kind of were just there. And then I just, I've loved it ever since, you know, going to mom and pop game stores and, uh, you know, collecting Nintendo power or walkthrough guides and so forth, because it was just a magical time and going to uh, the drugstore renting VHSs for like a dollar and a quarter. And, you know, if you didn't rewind them, then you could charge you 45 cents or whatever. But yeah, at that time you're like, fuck you. I don't care. I'll, I'm not gonna rewind it here. Take my 50 cents, keep a nickel. I don't care. But, uh, you know, just, I love just old media and I hope you guys too, too. And I'm, you know, I'm happy to be here and happy to share the love that I have for this stuff with you guys. So by all means, I'll take suggestions. I'll make more episodes. If you guys are intrigued with this, uh, my email is, uh, L E T Z dot S U R F dot 88 at gmail.com or shazbox dot 88. Um, that's S H A Z Z. Wait, what? Uh, yeah, shazz.box.88 dot eighty eight at hotmail.com or let's surf dot eighty eight at gmail.com. Uh, by all means, suggestions, quizzes, ideas. I'm I'm more than willing to work with people, you know, friends, family of the like to uh discuss these things in a podcast format and we can go from there. Thank you for listening. I'm very fortunate to be here. I've had a lot of support from friends and family, so thank you. Have a good night. All right. Welcome back, everybody, to uh, Marshall Media Montage. My name is Tyler, and uh, this is my uh, relatively retro uh, podcast in relation to movies, music, video games, and uh, TV shows, toys, you know, food, and the like. Anything and everything that we all love of, you know, us being dorks and nerds. That was Linkin Park's Meteora album, the song Nobody's Listening. That is one of the albums I listened to today while doing yard work, and I will get into that album later on in this uh, episode. Uh, to touch base with what I'm going to talk about this uh, episode is, uh, <clears throat> what is it, the uh, movie today, or excuse me, yeah, I think, I, did I watch it? No, I watched it, I watched the rest of it today, I started it last night, Phantasm Five: The Ravager. Uh, I touched base uh, on the previous episode that I was watching Samurai Pizza Cats, I get a little bit into that as well as another classic TV show, I mean, by some, I guess, who know it, is the Donkey Kong Country uh, CGI series. Uh, games, Live Alive, obviously, I'm going to get a little more into that, uh, rather than just saying, oh, I play this level, next, you know, topic. Um, Ratchet & Clank, the HDMI, uh, or excuse me, the HD collection for PS3, and uh, toys that I recently picked up was a Funko Pop and uh, these two little Nickelodeon figurine packages, so I will get right into that but before we start i will play in the background the ost american graffiti soundtrack i it's a double lp that i got i believe for my birthday a couple of years ago from my wife and we're starting out with rock around the clock don't want to have it too loud all right all right <clears throat> movie i will discuss is phantasm 5 the ravager it's more or less uh, of an action film than a horror film this time round uh, reminiscent to me of how like Resident Evil 4, 5, and 6 kind of took off from just straight horror, more like 
just action driven, uh, more or less. But, uh, you know, it, it's still, if you liked the first four and you want to finish the series, I'd say watch, uh, Phantasm five, you know, it was released in 2016. The first opening sequence, uh, Reggie, the main, uh, protagonist who is canon from the previous installments, you know, gets his car back and is chased by these silver spheres, which same thing are canon in all the other installments. Uh, these spheres have these little tiny, uh, sharp blades on them and they will pierce, you know, your face, whatever body part and, you know, um, <laughs> blood or some sort of yellow propulsion of fluid will come out depending on whether you're a human or some sort of demonic, you know, poltergeist entity, I guess, if you will, from another dimension. But that's a little neither here nor there. Obviously, unless you've seen the films, then you would know. Um, Reggie gets in the uh, Barracuda. He shoots them down and he runs into a redhead. Her name is Dawn. This time around, you see her later on. I think her name is like Julie or Jenny, something like that. But anyway, he runs into this red girl. Red girl. Yeah, she's apparently just red. No, uh, a redhead. Her name is Dawn. He stays with her at her cabin. And her acting, it seems rather forced. It's a little unnatural, like as if Reggie's holding essentially a cue card while she speaks. That's the gimmick that I felt from it. It just, it didn't, overall the film, it felt like it was just more or less like a hallmark or like a lifetime kind of TV film. It just, it didn't feel as, you know, originally horrific, I guess, or suspenseful as the first, you know, two installments. It just was forced. The CGI was very reminiscent of like Scorpion King mixed with Doom or 3000 Miles to Graceland, like the intro, just very low budget CG. Don Coscarelli wrote it just like he wrote the other installments of the franchise. I believe it was David Naughton who uh, directed, who was a uh, individual who worked on Disney films like Winnie the Pooh and so forth, but he directed it. Don Coscarelli wrote it, which is great. They keep all the same people from all the other uh, aspects of the uh, film canon, like uh, Angus Scrim is the tall man. He's still in it. The, uh, I don't know the actors' names uh, who play uh, Mike, Jody, and uh, Reggie, but they're all there. <sighs> anyway, um, so they're at the the cabin. Excuse me for going off on a tangent. They're at the cabin. Uh, he encounters a crazed like farmer with an axe, and then um, up out of nowhere, one of those spheres comes and kills the farmer. Uh, shortly before that, though, the farmer has a horse and it kills the horse. Personally, I feel like when I see films, I don't really want to see animals die. I mean, you know, I guess consider me a wimp, whatever. I mean, I know you, you would think I know what I'm getting into when I'm watching horror films, but, uh, I'd rather see humans die that are just stupid beyond belief rather than watching animals die. But that's just me. I know it's fake. It's fiction, but anyway, so, you know, the farmer loses his life too. And I was like, hell yes. Thank, thank God for that. You know? As I said before, nods to the original cast here. The blonde girl from the uh, first film where she seduces uh, Jody, Mike's older brother, she's in it. And she's in the morgue, which is attached to the mansion that's in the first film, uh, all the way up until the fifth one, obviously. Uh, I believe the actress's name is Kat. She's on this, like, platform coming towards Reggie. He has, like, bouts of dementia in and out of his current reality along with the alternate reality. And, uh, excuse me, let me get some water. So, you know, they're in the morgue and she turns into this like weird zombie face thing. I mean, you, you couldn't really trust her from the first film anyways, because she turns into uh, the tall man. But anyway, so 
Uh, as I said before, Reggie struggles with reality. He goes back and forth with Mike, uh, who's the younger brother of Jody, and this mental hospital that he's staying at frequently. And it's not necessarily what I wanted overall in a Phantasm installment, but it just it reminded me of like a really bad trauma or full moon direct film, which granted, you know, they're known for being bad, those publishing uh, companies of films, but anyway, oh, nice, Del Shannon, great song. But one of the quotes that I really enjoyed was, uh, there's kind of like a guerrilla warfare aspect to the alternate reality that Reggie, uh, you know, visits in his mind, I guess. It's, it's a little convoluted kind of a mess. It doesn't make too much sense to me, but... There's a short person that works with uh, Mike trying to essentially take down the tall man. And the quote that the shorter character says is, Fire in the motherfucking hole. Because he gives Mike a uh, RPG a bazooka round and you know he shoots right at the tall man with his lackeys. And the tiny little lackeys that are very reminiscent of uh, Jawas uh, from the Star Wars uh, saga. But I thought it was great. And then shortly after that, it doesn't make any sense because there's like this weird exposition point out in the outworld that I call it. It reminds me of Mortal Kombat, the, you know, red Mars lookalike total recall aspect with lightning and all from Raiden meets Shang Tsung. It just <laughs> so many just alternative, weird, uh, interesting aspects to this. Uh, the tall man talks to how Reggie and Mike were the tall man's subjects. And they turn. it turns out that Mike was working with Don the redhead girl, like I said, in this alternate universe to bring Reggie there to the tall man to confront him. And the, you know, tall man confirms that. And then, uh, you know, Dawn, well, I guess I, like I said, in the alternate aspect of this, her name's like Jenny or Julie it starts with a J. I can't remember. And the uh, lackey twists her head. And I was like, thank God. I was like, now I don't have to hear her talk anymore. Cause her acting was just not even subpar. It was just awful. Meanwhile, the short little man, a short character, whatever you want to call him, uh, pulls pins on some grenades like a tiny Rambo and, you know, <coughs> everybody else escapes and he blows up or you think he does. I'll explain that later. And they, uh, his acting also the short little man, I, I think it was supposed to be in your face. Just, oh, you know, blatantly just, I'm tough, even though I'm short, I have short man complex or tall, you know, whatever. It just. I don't know. I'm glad that it was over the top, but it was just a little annoying, but it made sense for his character. After the explosion, Reggie ends up in this mental ward and uh, in another reality, of course, uh, shooting down the asylum staff or so it seems. Mike shows up, hands him the, uh, you know, four barreled sawed off shotgun with duct tape or whatever that he's had since the first installment of the movie. And uh, Jody shows up in the Barracuda and the Barracuda reminds me of Kip from Knight Rider with Gatling guns on it. I don't know why Jody, who we thought was dead, whatever, is in it driving. And, uh, you know, Reggie goes in the backseat and falls asleep. Because I guess that's what old people do. They fall asleep, right? And enter an alternate reality once again. So, <laughs> you know, they drive off from there after killing the asylum staff. That, you know, you, you think that they're literally like these doctors that are trying to take care of Reggie. And then it turns out that they're the weird uh, tall man lackeys, I guess, if you will. So then it flashes back to the car driving and Reggie's in the hospital again with Mike, you know, and Jody. And he's on a essentially a hospital bed, like hooked up to like an IV. Mike and Jody are watching him holding his hand. You think he's going to die. And then he ends up dying. And uh, what was really interesting was uh, there was actually a deleted scene of that portion 
where there's ice cream truck music actually driving by the studio that they're at because in LA, you know, that's what you experience is uh, just people driving by and noise complaints and so forth that you can't necessarily, uh, you know, anticipate. And I don't know why they took it out. I think they should have left it in there because Reggie in the first movie was an ice cream man. It was kind of like coincidentally just perfect that that happened. They should have left it in there in my opinion, but it was cool to see that track on there. Um, so you stick around shortly after the credits, like the credits roll and it's literally maybe like 20 seconds later that the short man that I said, Oh, you thought he exploded in the ultimate, you know, mortal Kombat outworld universe. He comes through the silver bars that are about as tall as he is that are basically like, you know, when you walk through, uh, <laughs> like a train station, like those kind of like bars and, uh, he comes through back to quote unquote, you know, our world and Rocky, the black girl from, uh, I believe she was in the third or fourth installment. She's there from the previous entry. She picks up um, the short man and Jody, you know, in the Barracuda, picks them up and they drive into a dust bowl of giant silver spheres. Uh, and just that sequence reminded me of how the first Terminator ends, like kind of like a matte painting, but obviously they had really crappy CGI and it's not the same James Cameron 1984 soundtrack feel. Um, but it, just the way that it was shot, just I was like, oh, cool, it's very Terminator 1. I don't think that was the plan, but anyway. All right. Uh, let's move on to a uh, TV show I was watching. Uh, the Donkey Kong Country animated uh, CGI show. It's three seasons, aired from 1997 to 2000, and it's only 40 episodes in total. The first episode is titled Bad Hair Day. I will explain the synopsis of the episode momentarily, but let me get into how I felt about the show. Um, so the mouth doesn't sync up on any of the characters whatsoever, whether they're apes or, you know, crocodile reptilian characters. It just, it didn't sync up and it really irked my mind just watching that. But you, you get over it, I guess. Uh, Donkey Kong's body was relatively accurate but I feel his face is off. I suppose considering the computer limitations for the time, it makes perfect sense. King K. Rule, Karul, whatever, however you want to pronounce it was fine. On the show, they say Karul. I've always said K. Rule ever since I was a kid. Uh, Donkey Kong's voice was a little nerve wracking and not very fitting to his character to me either. And then what I really didn't enjoy was they made Diddy Kong, who is arguably you know, the franchise's most favored character next to perhaps Dixie Kong, they made him like a weak, scaredy little weakling bitch. It just, his voice and his demeanor was just atrocious. Uh, K. Rule's voice was very fitting. Um, quite possibly the best character, in my opinion, on the only episode I've watched so far with his gadget-like evil genius uh, demeanor about him, as well as his, I guess, little lair, if you will. There's, you know, gadgets that he can control. And it reminded me of, like, Dr. Claw from Inspector Gadget, sort of, so to speak. Uh, the random character in the episode that I didn't like was Bluster. I hope he's not there much longer because you never see him in any aspect of the franchise that I'm aware of ever again. He has a middle part for hair, uh, a black mustache, and he's just a terrible character. Like, he's just not funny. The way he talks, he's just atrocious. But Candy, on the other hand, she was a fox. No surprise there, because in the, even in the game, she was a babe. 
The show itself is very polygonal, reminiscent of the PlayStation 1 era cutscene graphics, perhaps, or at least that's how I would like to analogously look at it. Uh, I did like how many of the reptilian uh, grunts are very fitting in regards to their demeanor and body uh, language. One in particular, a tall blue muscular one named Crusher. He had the voice uh, similar to Rocksteady or Bebop from Ninja Turtles, and that was great to hear. Uh, and then, of course, when they introduce Funky Kong, he has a Jamaican accent about him. And how original, right? Come on, my airplane, man, I'll take care of you, which I have a terrible Jamaican accent. But I was really expecting, you know, some sort of like surfer vibe, you know, com comparatively to the game. That's what he looks like rather than a Jamaican, you know, drug dealer. Uh, blustery, even in one moment of the episode, they're, you know, taking a plane to go find donkey kong they can't find him and the plane goes down and the plane crashes and he's what does he say it was so annoying he had the audacity to say i'm tired i don't want to be in the desert i have sand in my shoes bitch you're an ape and you're not wearing any shoes you have cufflinks on your hands you know wrists because you're some sort of english butler you know ape for some reason as well as on your ankles i i can see the polygon crappy graphics from here you're not wearing shoes shut up so <laughs> that's how I felt about that character. So the plot being for the first episode, Bad Hair Day, Donkey Kong gets his hair cut by a cyborg Candy Kong and loses his power, you know, his strength. And for the reigning episode, they're trying to figure out how to gain his power back with the, uh, you know, crystal coconut. That's essentially the idea that I got from it, at least. And of course they do at the end. I mean, overall, I don't really feel like you're missing too much. They throw in some humor here and there, of course, because it's a kid's cartoon, but it, it was okay. You know, I, I'd say watch it if you enjoy Donkey Kong. Otherwise, if you don't want to watch, you know, bad CG graphics, just avoid it altogether. Shigeru Miyamoto wrote and directed characters, you know, the guy who did a lot of games for uh, the NES. So nod to him for that. That was incredible. Uh, it aired August 15th, 1998, and currently on IMDb has a 5.4 out of 1,254 people who have rated it. All right, moving on. Samurai Pizza Cats. I know I've talked about it a little bit, but I will get into it. Uh, 1990 to 1991, it aired. It has a 7.3 out of 1,002 people who viewed it. There's 54 episodes in Japan. However, in North America... There's only 52 episodes. It says the country of origin is France for some reason, according to IMDb. And it aired in North America September 9th, 1996. So that makes me think, so for five years it just sat while they, you know, did the uh, English dub or, or translated subtitles, whatever. And I, I'm curious what happened to the other two episodes. So I dug and I found out that the English dub that they went with because of the wacky Animaniacs route that, you know, they lost the uh, English transla uh, translation to those two other episodes, which they used as, uh, I believe, trailers to uh, promote the show instead. Uh, Saban uh, distributed the show. The characters are, the main uh, protagonists are uh, Polyester, who's a red uh, Gundam-clothed uh, female, Guido Anchovy, a blue gundam uh, clothed uh, male and Speedy Ceviche, who is a male Gundam clothed uh, white color, <clears throat> and he has a katana. I believe Polyester has a uh, parasol. I can't remember what uh, Guido Anchovy has. There were toys for the show that were released, 
by Bandai, and uh, which are incredibly really cool Gundam-looking model types that you can build and are extremely expensive now and hard to find. Uh, the American Comics did manage two issues to be uh, <laughs> distributed in 1997, a year after it aired. Uh, I ultimately like the show for what it's worth and the game. Kayato Nintendi, excuse my Japanese, on uh, Famicom. Play it any which way you can. I know they do sell it as well. Uh, reproduction cart for a NES. Uh, highly recommended. It's a fun action platformer, and the show is just, you know, it's a guilty pleasure. It's corny, but it's it's good. I mean, if you like, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, okay, let's switch it up. Video games. Uh, <clears throat> I've briefly touched on Live Alive. It, it is a Switch game now that was released this year in July. Originally, uh, 1994 RPG by Square Enix on the Super Famicom, the Japanese Super Nintendo. <clears throat> As I stated it before, it does follow seven different sequences, which are different time periods. And I played them in this order. I had no idea I was out of order, but these, this is how I played it. I beat the Sundown Kid uh, Western, which was enjoyable. Pogo Prehistoric, which I really enjoyed. The Earth and Heart Shifu Imperial China, which was also really good. And I feel like I missed out on the Edo Japan as Obamaru. Uh, Obamaru. I can't remember how to pronounce his name. But uh, I think there was more to do in that chapter. I definitely beat it uh, last night, but it was enjoyable. And now I'm doing the present day uh, portion of the uh, game. And you play as a fighter, which reminds me of Rocky mixed with Street Fighter in the way that you choose the villains and you play as the underdog. Um, it, it's like a Street Fighter type screen where you choose the villain. I had no idea which villain I was choosing. I had no idea which level I was going to start at. I already anticipated grinding because I've grinded before on the other characters to level 10 which I think was their max in some chapters. Um, I got smoked the first round uh, with the fighter, whoever I fought. I can't remember. He reminded me of a doll seam, actually, from Street Fighter. So there's another, another reference for you. And uh, I, I got smoked, so I turned it off. I was like, all right, I'm going to watch Phantasm Five. That way I have an episode to record. <laughs> so the game itself was actually originally considered a failure when it came out in 1994, and it only sold 270,000 units. The remake itself that sold a couple months ago sold half a million. So that's a great increase. The battle mechanics uh, feature a charge bar for your turn as well as the enemies have a charge. Ah, excuse me, I had to grab some water. Uh, what's nice is the bar itself, can uh, it conveys their vulnerabilities slash weaknesses and resistances to whatever attacks that you have that you intend to use. And it's really easy and intuitive to understand and play. It's action grid based, uh, similar to uh, Fire Emblem, sort of. Um, <clears throat> and uh, the music composition was great, done by Yoko Shimomura, who also did work, uh, or minor work, on Capcom's Breath of Fire, which is also a Super Nintendo slash PlayStation 1 um, RPG. The artwork was done by Na uh, Naoki Ikushimomura. Uh, Shimo, oh my gosh, I apologize on the Japanese there. However, I was going to tip my hat, if I were wearing one, uh, to Naoki, that his artwork is impeccably just done. It's reminiscent of the HD 2D Octopath Traveler with just high-scaling sprites mixed with newer graphics. It's beautiful. I love it. Anyway, moving on to the next game. 
Ratchet and Clank, the HD remake, PS3, released August 28th, 2012. Admittedly, I started playing Ratchet and Clank with the PS4 game that came out a few years ago, and I loved it, and I was like, okay, I gotta find Going Commando and Locked and Loaded and Up Your Arsenal. Fortunately for me, I found the first two, couldn't find the third one, and I found this one, the HD remake, on OfferUp. I was talking to a buddy, and I was like, I'm gonna get that, and he was like, all right, cool. So I bought it from him, and now I have the other two installments, which I'll probably sell to a mom-and-pop shop because I don't really need it. I have the HD remake now. Neither here nor there. Back to the podcast. Uh, the game itself includes the three originals, which I mentioned, a Going Commando, Locked and Loaded, and Up Your Arsenal, made by Insomniac Games. The game itself, the uh, you know premise of it is you're an action, comedic, platforming... Uh, <laughs> fox cat creature uh with gadgets and it's really cool comic booky cell shading it's very pretty to look at i enjoy it the core gameplay is the same as the ps2 it just reaches 720p and 60 frames per second comparatively to the previous uh rendition of it with the um av cables on the ps2 it's not a difficult game by any means it's just a big old fetch quest with platforming and running and gunning and exploring uh, similar to Spyro or Jack and Daxter, and even Sly Cooper in some aspects, minus the stealth uh, aesthetic. Metacritic gave it an 83 out of 100. It's well-deserved, and, you know, it's an immensely just fun game. It, it should only last you, I don't know, maybe 8 to 12 hours per game to probably beat, and if the first game is anything like the other three, then I'm looking forward to the other ones. I highly recommend it. Go play it. All right, I'm going to switch records out real quick. That record is done. Let me grab the second LP, side two. Let's go. All right. Ooh, a little Beach Boys action. All right. Okay, toys I picked up recently. Five Below sells underpriced items sometimes, according to uh, eBay or price charting or whatever you manage to find, right? Good for me. So I picked up a Funko number 33 South Park Ranger from uh, the Stick of Truth. It's Stan. Totally awesome game. RPG done by, uh, you know, South Park Studios. The sequel, even Fractured Butthole was great. I know, great name. But uh, yeah, those RPGs are actually very well done. Very worth uh, your time for those of you who enjoy South Park as well as RPGs. Um, <clears throat> I only paid, I think, maybe $5.65, if I'm not mistaken, for the Funko. I have it in box still. I'm not going to take it out. I've seen it on eBay, anywhere between $12 to $20, give or take. You know, I didn't make much of a profit, but maybe down the road. Who, who's to know? Who's to say? You know, this one, came, this uh, model itself came out last year, you know, years beyond the game, but whatever. I'm happy I found it for a decent price, right? Uh, never thought I would actually personally start collecting these things, but here I am with, in the box, uh, Ghost in the Shell, Morty from Rick and Morty, a Hostess Ding Dong Cupcake, which actually goes for a pretty penny. I think I've seen it go for about 50, 60. Uh, Goku from Dragon Ball Z, obviously. Jennifer Aniston's character from Office Space. Uh, Iggy Pop from Iggy Pop and the Stooges. And I have others, I think like one or two more, I can't recall. Oh no, I have Queen Elizabeth in the box. And I knew that was going to skyrocket. I got it for maybe, I think, $11 a couple years ago, and I just knew. I was like, once she passes, rest in peace, uh, the Monarch. I was like, it's going to go up in price, and I've seen it anywhere between $80 to $200 online. I don't plan on selling it now, but I, I just I knew it was an investment. Uh, Loose 
I have Donatello from Ninja Turtles and Frieza from Dragon Ball Z. Uh, those I found, I think, at like a thrift store without the box. But surprisingly, those are a lot of fun to collect for if the price is right and keep in a good condition on a toy shelf. So uh, next two toys that I picked up <coughs> were two packs of Nickelodeon figurines. First is a Rugrats pack, which features Phil, Lil, Chucky, Tommy, and Spike. I got for $4.99 at the 99 cent store. Uh, they were made last year by Play Logo Toys. Never heard of them. And uh, I guess that's that. I mean, I didn't really dig too much on Play Logo. Perhaps I can for another episode. Next is a SpongeBob released the same year by the same brand. And it has the yellow sponge as a rocker. The old tiny uh, rendition, uh, sort of like Steamboat Willie, uh, jellyfishing. Ripped pants from the one episode and a robot from another episode. Pretty dang cool in my opinion. And uh, I also got that at Five Below. And I'm glad that I did. You know, I, I enjoy collecting what I, you know, what I like. I think we all like to do that. And that's why we're here because we want to hear people talk about it. You know? So the last segment that I would like to go over is uh, music. So... On a bike ride today, I listened to MDC, a punk band from who formed in Austin, Texas, based in San Francisco, and now resides in Portland, Oregon. Say that ten times fast and try and remember. It's definitely, uh, it resembles the early hardcore uh, standpoint of uh, how punk was just kind of founded, at least in America. Um, the original name, besides MDC, was The Stains. MDC stands for Millions of Dead Cops, uh... You know, and then they released the album that I listened to, Multi Death Corporation. So I was like, "What's the name of the actual band?" But uh, it's very similar to, you know, Negative Approach, Minor Threat, uh, Reagan Youth, Youth Brigade. Just that straight up, just American hardcore, and I I love that sound. You know, uh, whether it be the lyrics or the um, music itself, and uh, you know, the name of the band for me is a little off putting, but you know, I still wanted to listen to. It. I mean, for instance. I listen to Cannibal Corpse. You know, the name itself is off-putting, but I still like the music for what it's worth. Okay. So anyway, the band itself, they still play periodically, and the lyrical content, you know, what you're getting into was, of course, radical political views for the time, which I'm sure one can imagine and agree with and or disagree with, you know, the like. You know, you think you know what you're getting into when you're listening to something titled Millions of Dead Cops, right? But it's just just a band. It's, it's all in good fun, right? You know, you don't have to take everything so seriously. Take it with a grain of salt. So, <clears throat> the albums were released by Jello Biafra from uh, Dead Kennedys on his Alternative Tech, uh, Alternative Tentacles record label. Like I said, I listened to the Multi Death Corporation album. It was a live album. It had 45 songs. Well, actually, I don't think all the songs were live, but it was really interesting. Some of the uh, things that you know the guy was talking about, like what was going on with like the army in El Salvador and. It was just weird to hear on my bike ride. I would slow down a little bit, like, just to, so I can listen. And I was like, whoa, I should probably pay attention. I'm biking. <laughs> so it's 80s propaganda at its finest, which is fine. I wanted the fast, you know, hardcore experience while I was exercising. Okay, later on in the day, I listened to Meteora by Linkin Park. Also the, uh, you know, song that I showed you guys in the beginning, right? Well, one of the songs off that album. It is their second studio album. Released March 25th, 2003, and it features remixes of their debut album, essentially, uh, Hybrid Theory from 2000. 
Uh, I will segue into that real quick and I'll get back to uh, Meteora. But uh, I remember when that album came out, uh, Hybrid Theory, and it was a big deal. I remember hearing uh, One Step Closer, just the shut up. <laughs> I remember getting that album. I think it was at Target. I was with my grandma and I remember I immediately opened it up and I threw it in her CD player and I turned that song up. I didn't turn it up incredibly too loud because I was like, I know she's older. I don't want to scare her in any way whatsoever. But uh, I just remember the shut up part came on and she was just like, oh, this is this is just too much. Why do you like this? And I was just like, I don't know, grandma. It's just what I like. You know, I was like, I'm not she was like, well, at least, you know, you still get good grades and you stay out of trouble. And I'm like, yeah, I always have. I just enjoy angry, depressed music, Grandma. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> so back to the album. It has a similarly uh, emotionally heavy feeling, just like the Hybrid Theory uh, debut album, their first album. It took almost a year to record, and it's the first album to feature the uh, bassist Dave Farrell. It clocks in at 36 minutes. It sold 80,000 copies in its first week, and it features Somewhere I Belong, the song, uh, Faint, Numb, and From the Inside, and Breaking the Habit. It, the entry itself felt like it was too similar, according to critics, for a sophomore album, uh, basically an extension of the first one. But that's okay with me. I mean, reflection and repetition is what we like, you know, according to basic psychology. But... Uh, which segues me into the uh, follow-up album because I also listened to that while doing yard work earlier. Minutes to Midnight, released 2007, four years later. Uh, I also listened to this. Uh, it's definitely a shift in sound compared to the previous entry. It's a little softer, but overall still good in that Linkin Park vibe. It's the first album to carry the potential, or potential, wow, the first album to carry the parental advisory label within their catalog of music. The album is 43 minutes in length. It features What I've Done, Bleed It Out, Shadow of the Day, Given Up, and Leave Out All the Rest. The album debuted at number one in the U.S., and it had the largest first week sales of 2007 at the time. 623,000 albums were sold, and overall, it ranked 154 on the Billboard's Hot 200 Albums of that decade, which obviously it's opinionated. I have definitely felt like I've heard better albums within the year 2000 to 2010, but that's just my opinion. This is, you know, obviously their opinion. Rolling Stone named it the 25th best album of 2007. Now, to me, that's a little more fitting. If I would narrow it down to a year rather than a decade. There's so many other bands and artists and just... You know, even I would categorize original soundtracks that were just better than... But anyway. Rightly so, thank you, Rolling Stone, that it is, it's an entertaining uh, album within their means of musical entertainment. However, granted, yes, I do prefer their tougher, harder, edgier music personally, but it is still great within the uh, canon and caliber of the Linkin Park uh, flavor, I guess, if you will. Once again... Uh, ladies and gentlemen who enjoy dorky things, you know, thank you for being here and thank you for listening to me. I hope you enjoyed my uh, episode 1.2. I will definitely uh, adventure into other music, movies, and TV shows, books, toys, games. It's just uh, maybe even throw in a couple food and drink here and there. We'll see. But, uh, you know, thank you for uh, supporting me and being there. I, I really appreciate it. You know, have a good night, everybody. Happy Black Friday. <laughs>